And let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13 this morning. Just one more week after this in Philippians. Um, Josh messaged me the other day and he just said, I'm really sad. I'm putting all my Philippians commentaries back on the shelf. And we feel a little sadness as we move towards the end, but God has been so good to us through this series. And so he's got another day for us to, to dwell in this text. We're going to be considering the idea of contentment this morning. Uh, the pursuit of contentment in life is not just a, a Christian thing, right? The desire to be contented where there's a sense of happiness, of satisfaction, just like all things are right. There's this peace where I'm at and the things I have. This is a, a human desire. Um, this is the reason we have commercials. Uh, this is the reason you can't watch YouTube video without like 15 ads popping up because they're saying, you are discontented. This will make you content. Since the beginning of time, this has been a reality. The, what we're going to look at this morning, Paul's writing to these folks is because there's this issue of contentment. And right here, right now, we, we have the same thing. We, there's a war of, for contentment against discontentment. A quick Google search of how to find contentment will lead you to 16.5 million results with a variety of remedies like being true to yourself, exercise more, let go of your past, stop buying stuff you don't need. Now, some of these might help some wellness in your life and bring some contentment. Yet for the Christian, there, there is something that God offers us. He offers his people a true re remedy, an answer to contentment. And today's text is going to draw us into that, to consider this, this promise, this, this secret key to true contentment for us. So let's read our text and we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to help us know this. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know each and every one of us, there, there is this reality of contentment and discontentment that we each face each and every day. The moment we, we roll out of bed, there will be a, a question around our hearts. What will we be content in? And Lord, these, these words that are from Paul, but are God from you to us this morning, we, they confront us and they, they awaken us to, to discontentment in our life, but it is ultimately an invitation to deep abiding contentment. And Lord, I, I ask this morning as we look at your, your word that the Spirit would, would you come and work on us, work on me, and would you help us to find a deep 
abiding, joyful, peaceful contentment in you. We need your help. Come and be with us. Open our hearts to that. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul's rejoicing in this letter continues. This is the third time we've received this term, rejoice in the Lord. Paul say he is rejoiced in the Lord greatly. There's this, he, God's the object of his joy, but in this immense joy and gratitude is a reason because of their concern for him shown in a gift that was given by the Philippian church. Remember what Paul received, what they sent him. One of the church members, Paphroditus, um, went on a journey all the way to Rome. He traveled at, at almost the cost of his life. Um, they collected a financial gift to support Paul, and there's Paul in a Roman prison. Don't think, remember, it's not like a dungeon. It's more like kind of like a probably not a very nice apartment room, and he's, he's chained to a, a Roman guard, and there's no provisions for him unless he gets support. It's not like the jail's paying for his food. He, he needs support in order to eat, in order to kind of have rent there, and all his dependents are on these gifts. He, he needs money, and this is an expression, their gift is an expression of their partnership. They're, they're affirm, it is affirmed, again, in their concern for him. Now, we can't really see it in our English word here, this word concern, but it, it's the same word we've seen elsewhere in Philippians numerous times, to, to be like-minded, to have same-mindedness. When Syntyche and Yodia were, were called to be in, of like-minded, they, this word concern has the same idea. Their like-mindedness is being expressed in this tangible gift of their partnership and unity and love by giving him support financially. Now, it may seem odd that this is like at the end of the letter. I mean, this is one of the whole reasons Epaphroditus came in the first place. You'd think Paul would have launched in at the beginning and said, thank you for bringing me those money, that money. Um, I mean, this was a big deal. Epaphroditus almost died on this trek. This gift was important, and it was valuable to Paul, and he, that's why he rejoiced greatly. But it's interesting that Paul pushes this towards the end, because there was a, a priority of instruction to the church. That their souls, their hearts, their unity, the health of this church took a priority. So he comes to the end and he's giving thanks for their generous giving. But, but here's the deal. This, this isn't just filler text. These aren't just leftover thoughts of Paul. Though at the end of this phenomenal letter, these precious truths that we're going to look at today are, are paramount to the Christian life, to know joy experienced in Christian contentment, to be content. I don't know if you want more of that. I, I need more contentment, and this is an invitation for us to experience more of that. So this final section we're going to look at today and next week, Paul is giving thanks. He's going to talk about their generosity and more next week. And we'll talk about it more, but it points back actually to a reference that Paul makes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he's encouraging the Corinthians to be generous, to give an offering, to help the church in Jerusalem. And he actually uses the churches in Macedonia, specifically the Philippians, as an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, their abundance of out of their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
So out of their, pov- their poverty, out of their lack, they're giving generously. And Paul's using them as an example. And here, once again, he's pointing to their generous hearts, pouring out their support for Paul. And he says, now at great length, you have revived your concern for me by sending this money. This word revived is this actually botanical term. It's like a flower that's blooming. Maybe it's been dormant and it's, it's winter and it's finally, it's alive again. Man, that sounds really nice. <laughs> Things that are alive again. But as Paul says this, that great length, you finally sort of revived your concern for me. He, he doesn't want to be misunderstood. So he gives a couple qualifications around their giving Um, because he doesn't want any misunderstanding on what he's saying. And it's important. These are important. Because first, even though Paul's an impeccable communicator, even the best can be misunderstood. So he he wanted to be sure that they didn't hear his thanks about finally reviving their support for him in sort of a good old Minnesota passive-aggressive backhanded way, right? Like, thanks for sending your cash again, finally. I mean, it's been a while. Thanks for remembering. He, he doesn't want that to be misunderstood. So he, he qualifies. He realizes that they were not able to. That's why he says, you were indeed concerned for me. They, they were still like-minded, one-hearted with him. They wanted to, but you had no opportunity. We don't know what that means, but it, it could be they had particular hardships or lack of resources. Maybe they weren't able to get things to Paul practically. So he he qualifies that. I know your heart is for me. You just weren't able to. And then secondly, he says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, which is very odd because he was in need. Paul's overjoyed thanks. He didn't want that to be misconstrued as him longing for them to send more money. Paul Paul wanted to be be clear. He, He is not about money. He is not a lover of money. He wasn't like those prosperity preachers working for the Benjamins, right? He, he, he does this later in verse 16. He says, thank you that you've sent help for my needs. He makes them known, but he wants to be sure they know his needs are not the most important thing to him, nor is it the, what dictates their relationship. He has needs, but their money and his lack are not distractions from him finding peaceful joy in God because it certainly was not rosy, right? Look, look what Paul writes, and this is kind of where we get to the heart of what Paul is saying about his contentment in verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul has learned something that in any situation, wherever he's in, whatever circumstances that he's facing, he can be content. And he gives these situations of low and abounding, plenty and hunger, abundance and a need, content. I mean, this, is, this is stunning. Like We should read these things, and he is in a prison at this moment, right, awaiting possible execution, and he's, he's saying, I'm content. I'm at peace. I, I can rejoice greatly. How is this possible? Now, now, Paul has been writing to this church, and he's been using very specific words to a very Greek culture and context. He's, he's 
He knows who he's writing to. And this word content means self-sufficient, and it would be a well-known term to Greeks. The Stoic philosophers of the day actually used this term, and they considered contentment an ultimate virtue to obtain. They wanted to arrive at contentment, to be freed from all dependencies, to be completely independent was the goal. There was actually a Stoic line that said, Man should be sufficient unto himself for all things, and able, by the power of his will, to resist the force of circumstances. Now, this seems strange. Is Paul saying, I've learned the power of self-sufficient, self-dependence? I mean, is Paul Googling and coming up with the concept to be true to yourself? Find contentment in yourself. Actually, Paul's doing the opposite. He's undoing this pagan thought that put, and puts this contentment in its proper place. Contentment is not self-sufficiency by finding more independence through the power of self-will, but it is to be freed to experience radical contentment by dependence on someone, on something else. The power of another, not of self. He finds it in and through Jesus Christ. And this, this is where we, we come to what Paul has learned, the secret that he has unlocked to enable him to have true contentment in all situations. And it's, it's there before us in verse 13. Through Christ. True contentment through Christ. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, Guilty of this, but we, we have all used or have seen this verse sadly misapplied, misused, or abused, right? The athletic world loves this verse. It's written on helmets, it's etched on faces, it's tattooed on UFC fighters' chests. Really, they are. I mean, they're going in thinking, I'm going to rear naked choke this guy <laughs> through the strength of Jesus. I mean, is he saying that? Is he's like, got the guy tapping out? Well, the all things is not a promise of anything, right? I can't bench 500 pounds. I would, I would never have and I never will. I can't leap across the Grand Canyon, right? There's a context for this text. Application to scriptures to our life must flow from the context of those scriptures themselves. Remember our context, the situation that Paul just described as obstacles or tests for his contentment. Hunger, being humiliated, being in need. So our promise, its promise to us, flows from what the context of the Scriptures offer as the promise as which Paul clings to. So it's not a promise of victory over our opponents in a football game or absolute triumph in this life, avoiding all and any defeats and pains and losses. Rather, it's a promise of strength through all of them, through the power of someone else. So all the highs and lows can be navigated and made through, through Christ. So we could find strength and power to find joyful contentment in Jesus when hunger pains are upon me when we were brought low. So, so when I am in the ring and I get knocked out and I'm on my face and I lose it all, I can get up and put trust in Jesus 
with the result of peace and joy. So it's not, I'm going to be rich through Christ's strength, or I'm going to be prosperous through Christ's strength, or there's no defeats through Christ's strength. Rather, it's if the Lord wills, I can embrace martyrdom through Christ's strength. I can hunger and embrace death through Christ's strength. So, so do you see that? It's, it's complete the opposite of self-willing, but it's a trust in Christ willing and working in us. Paul has already talked about this power at work and willing in us. So the things that I face, I can endure all that our good and wise God would permit sovereignly in my life and by his strength, by placing faith upon Christ and his power in me, I can rejoice in the Lord. I can find contentment in the Lord. Paul could do all things through Christ because he encountered and knew Christ in a way that was, that was enabling him for this contentment. We saw this, look back in chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Note, everything, all things, all circumstances, all situations, the ability for Paul to see losses and gains and yet experience unwavering contentment was because he understood all the gains and all the losses as nothing compared to what he already had in Christ himself. He was him his treasure, and therefore he was his strength to see and be satisfied. If all was lost, he had his greatest riches, which was Christ. If, if he gains all the riches on this earth, he realizes they won't satisfy their rubbish in comparison because he has his treasure, he has Christ. So when Christ becomes our treasure, we can likewise say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because the promise of God's strength in us through Christ is not a removal of hunger or loss, but an enduring through it because we have him with us. So hunger and yet content, loss and yet content. And by his power, we can rejoice always with the peace of God. Notice how these all connect to what Paul's been saying, guarding our hearts and minds, a peace that surpasses all understanding. How could I be content in this situation? This is a peace and a joy that I have that seems impossible that the world would see, but God is enabling me to have because we have this surpassing worth of Jesus in our life. It is only by this power that Paul would say his contentment when he writes to the Corinthians, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content with persecutions. I'm content with calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. Notice it's, it's absolutely acknowledging our weakness and the strength and the power of God to help us to be content in a moment that seems like impossible contentment. God's strength was being made more real in his life, not by a denial of weaknesses, but an embracing of weaknesses and could find contentment for Christ's sake and through Christ. This is glorious news. I don't know if you may be experiencing this on Monday morning, but I don't fear martyrdom typically 
as a concern on Monday morning when I wake up. I, I, don't, I don't have a concern with martyrdom and meaning to be content with Christ with martyrdom being present at my door, but discontentment is present all over the place on Monday morning. Hundreds of real things will show up, and some of them are very real for some of us. Death's presence near upon us or our family. But much of the time, it's, it's just regular, real-life, everyday stuff. This week, my only two-year-old oven died, just dead. I think, Lord, why am I preaching this text the moment my oven breaks? Nate, what will be your response in that moment? What, what will be a, 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 a broken oven? It could be small, it could be big. I mean, it doesn't take much. We could walk through Costco and be tested by our contentment. Or it could be very real testings. But these, these can be very real needs. And a family of six, you realize how much you need an oven. Like, you need an oven a lot. This was a real need. And I had to pray. I had to stop and pray because I was tested to be troubled beyond what I should be in that moment. And pray for strength. Jesus, satisfy me right now. Help me to find contentment in you. Be my source of peace and joy, not my range working or not. So day in, day out, this text comes before us and invites us into contentment in Jesus. Endless opportunities to press into God's strength for our contentment through Christ. Now, we've been hiding a lot about the losses and the lows and our needs, but, but Paul doesn't just say the lows. What about the abounding? What about the plenty? What about the abundance? We could, we could have a lot of stuff that is really comfortable in our life, in plenty, and there is just as much a place of discontentment, a lack of satisfaction in God that can be upon us. We find that the, in the Proverbs this prayer, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and I profane the name of my God. Lest I be full, let us be, lest I be too comfortable, too much abundance, and I say, who's the Lord? Loss isn't the only danger zone. Probably more so, and I think why Jesus teaches often about riches in those dangers, is a place of abundance. The Apostle Paul warned against dangers of money in 1 Timothy, and he writes, godliness with contentment is great gain. And wrote, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. But by knowing and treasuring Christ above all, it doesn't just simply protect us in those moments of contentment and loss, it protects us in those great gains. We remember, it's, if the greatest treasure and the riches we most need is ours already in Jesus, this guards our hearts from finding our hope and rest in those things that are around us. So the secret to contentment starts unlo being unlocked here. True contentment then is being satisfied in Christ. Through trusting and believing in Jesus Christ and finding in Him the peace and joy we most need Christians can be content in him in all situations. This is a supernatural work of God in us. 
This is not an intellectual ascent. This is a work of God's presence and spirit in us to be content in him. And it's also a process. Note Paul's note here. We learn through, we find contentment through Christ, but we also find contentment through learning. Paul says, I have learned. I know that and I have learned a secret. I've learned something. I've learned in whatever situation and in every circumstance to be content. And this idea of learning means he had to participate in something with the Lord at work in him regarding his situations. And it was process. It came over time. And it came through many situations. I, I learned recently, and I didn't know this before, but Minnesota is one of the most challenging places on the planet to build a home with the massive fluctuations in temperature, right? We can have 100 degrees in the summer. We can have negative 50 in the winter. And as a home builder, as my home builder friends tell me, this is very challenging. It's very challenging and hard to build a home that will successfully weather these extremes. But home building didn't get to where we are overnight, right? There was experience and failures and trials and still evolving and changing methods and materials to create a home, a living space that could be protected, that could be durable, that could withstand the massive heats and colds, the sun and rain, the ice and humidity. Now think about that. I consider Paul, this, this, this path that God had him since he rescued him. Over time, he, he built in him. He learned through the extremes of life, these situations, it gave him opportunity to be tested and to draw his heart towards Christ's strength. More over time, every moment, every day, situations to find contentment in the Lord. And this, this was discovered. This was learned for him. We saw in our text last week, Paul used this sort of same idea of learning. Remember, Paul received the gospel. He came and he, he preached the gospel to the Philippians. They received, they, they heard, they, they saw, they learned. They, they learned something from Paul's example. They learned something from his letter. Well, if we just looked at Philippian letter and consider the truths that we can learn to maintain joyful contentment, what would we discover? John, Pastor John Piper asked that question, and he came up with some very concise observations through traversing the letter, and, and I, think, I think we could be helped by them. So here's the idea. What if we grasped, we learned these truths, these building blocks deep into our hearts? How can these help us so that in whatever situation we face, we could be content? Here, here's a few of these. God turns losses for gain. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We could be content because, like Paul, he's in prison. He's seeing this not as a hindrance, but as an advancement. Lord, I could be content in this, what appears to be a hindrance, because you are doing it to advance something. The Spirit of Jesus works to save us in peril. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Content. Because we know the Spirit will empower and keep us safe. Ultimately, save us and keep us. Can we, if we remember that Christ is keeping us safe, whatever we're in, we could be content. Suffering is a gift of God with good purposes. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So if we remember that all that's coming down into our life, the, the good gifts, the graces that God gives us, and also knowing that suffering is by his good plan, we can 
can find contentment. The worst suffering for Christ is gloriously rewarded. Jesus' example, therefore, because he suffered for such loss willingly, God has highly exalted him. Content, because we know that that loss, that, that suffering God used to then be a place where the Savior was exalted. And likewise, we will expect the same for us. In all our workings, God is working in us and uh, in us and through us. God is the one who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So all the lows, all the abounding, we know God is working in us. We can have contentment. A couple more. The absence of grumbling, which is the same as the presence of contentment, is a sign that you are a child of God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. So you're facing hard things and you find yourself giving thanks and not grumbling. This is proof that you are his child. That is God's gift to us. We could be content in him. Even though my body will wear out and die, Christ, but Christ will come and give me a new body. We just looked at this text recently. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What, what a promise, right? In our lowly bodies, in our breaking bodies, in our failing bodies, our aging bodies, we encounter those things. We, we know this is, this is not going to be the end. God will make all things new, and we can find contentment. Now, these are just a few verses here in the letter to the Philippians. We have the vast promises of God through his whole word to come to us, to renew our minds, to renew our hearts, to trust him with faith, with thanksgiving, and rather than being falling to discontented despair or fearful anxiety, we can, through Christ, through his power, through his promises, find in all circumstances it does not have to dictate our contentment. We have him. But let's be honest, we fight discontentment, as we've already talked about. Daily, daily for me, will I be content in the Lord? Discontentment reveals a longing for something we want and don't have, what we expect that does not come or desires left unmet. It's important to acknowledge some of those those things that come at us that disrupt our contentment, that are enemies of contentment. One of, those, one of those is coveting. The Tenth Commandment, what is that? Thou shall not covet anything of my neighbor's. My neighbor's wife, my neighbor's ox. Likely you're not coveting your neighbor's ox. Hopefully you're not. I, I don't know. But it can be seen in the discontentment that's exposed by our coveting of many things. Someone else's job, someone else's money, someone else's status, someone else's body, someone else's situation, someone else's new iPhone. Comparing other situations to your situations and your relationships to your, your relationships, and it can, it can be a temptation in that moment, coveting towards a slide of, to discontentment. So, uh, so we can all ask of ourselves, ask of our hearts, what, what do you have um, in the sort of the fill in the blank? I'd be content if, 
What's in that blank? If only this would change. If only I had blank. If only this would be different, then I would be content. An indicator of our active discontentment present in our life is is a lack or absence of joy. The repetitive command in an invitation in Philippians is rejoice in the Lord. And it is connected to this concept of thankful contentment. So it's good for us to diagnose our discontentment. Is it uncovering pride? Is it it uncovering a coveting spirit? What we think you deserve or what you don't have. What, what, What is that discontentment revealing to you today? And how has Jesus provided an answer for you in that? Through Christ, in Christ, by Christ. Jesus, Jesus says he, he comes, he comes through this verse 13, and it's, it's an invitation for us to be satisfied in him. He, it's an invitation of joy. It's an invitation for us to, to find strength, his power enabling us to, to look around and see all that we do have and to find our resolve in him. So we can read this charge to be content as some sort of bludgeoning command, like, be content. Or we can hear it as coming from our Savior as an invitation for greater joy in Him. Be content in me. Be happy in me. Be satisfied in me. Be freed in me. Find joy in me. I'm here wanting to give you all of those things in who I am. Come to me and find that contentment. It's a good invitation, church, for us. A good invitation, a sweet invitation for us. I wanted to mention a couple observations that I think is helpful. This this has been called a friendship letter by scholars because of its design, because of Paul's deep affection and love for these people, their reciprocal care for one another. And I think there's a couple things that we could highlight regarding Christian relationships and friendships and how this connects to contentment. One, remember Paul's qualifier at the beginning regarding their pause in giving to them. Paul's care for them and love for them didn't change, and they wanted to be sure that that didn't change for them, even though they couldn't give out the same way. Here's the point. During various seasons in our life, there are ways relationships evolve Stages of life, ages of kids, jobs, capacities, and our ability to give of ourselves to relationships can change. And that happened for Philippians with Paul. We need to embrace this as well. What we can give and what we can expect of others can change. And it's always needful for us to have humble thoughts and thinking the best of others and we need to be wise and not to misinterpret those changes as, people, as, as people's care or love for us has changed in those seasons as well. It's an easy tool. Remember, in this letter, this theme of relationship and, and unity in their, in their community, the, the devil would love to let this be an easy tool to implant doubt and bitterness in our hearts. And I see Paul's example as beautiful, as a call for unity, a call for love, and a call to communicate. Paul communicates. He, he makes sure he's, it's clear. He talks it out and affirms his love. And this connects to this next point. 
this relationship, this partnership was not transactional, meaning it was around money, just around money, but it was around Christ Jesus. Friendships that are utilitarian, just in it for what I can get from you or what you can get from me, once that bank account is empty, that relationship itself will, will dry up. It, then it's no longer needed because our transactions don't need it, are needed anymore. Those relationships are not true friendships. There, there needs to be a deep-growing contentment in Jesus by both people in a relationship. Or it could turn grossly codependent. Because we look to it to feed our identity and our peace and our contentment rather than Jesus himself. So we need to serve others out of a growing contented identity in Jesus. Not to get from others, but out of God's provision and our identity in him. And that is joyful for us and joyful for those we love and serve. A content person in Jesus makes a, a good friend. And we want to do that with one another. So... All this looking away from ourselves, our situations, uh, looking to Christ and away from our hearts in unhelpful ways, fighting, coveting, seeking to make our heart aware of our weaknesses like Paul, this takes humility. This ta- the fight for, for contentment requires humility. In the art of divine contentment, in ex- exposition of Philippians 4.11 The Puritan, Thomas Watson, wrote an entire book on this one verse. That was like the Puritans. They they would take a verse and they would mine it deep, deep, deep. And there is an entire book on this one verse of being content. And he writes about the necessity of humility and contentment. It's a little bit lengthier, but it's so good. The humble man is the contented man. He doth not say his comforts are small but his sins are great. He thinks it a mercy he is out of hell, therefore he is contented. He doth not go to carve out a more happy condition to himself. He knows the worst peace God cuts him is better than he deserves. A proud man is never contented. He is one that hath a high opinion of himself, therefore under small blessings is disdainful, under small crosses impatient. The humble spirit is the contented spirit. If his cross be light, he reckons it the inventory of his mercies. If it be heavy, yet he takes it upon his knees, knowing that when his estate is worse, it is to make him the better. When you lay humility for the foundation, contentment will be the superstructure. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. And he reminds them he reminds us in his, in his book about this future glory, one that Paul has been pointing to of Jesus' return. He says this, Though it be sad for the present, yet let us be content in that it shortly will be better. For it is but a while, and we shall be with Christ, bathing ourselves in the fountain of love. We shall never complain of wants and injuries anymore. Our cross may be heavy, but one side of Christ will make us forget all our former sorrows. This is what Paul's been seeking to do, to lift the, the, the Philippians' heart to the exalted Christ, to anticipate Christ coming, content knowing that we're going to have him fully, and in part we have him now. 
We see the gift of Christ that we've received, the treasure beyond measure, and we have Jesus. We have been given his grace, his unmerited favor. We have Jesus. We experience the mercies of God and the wrath that we do deserve against our sin, but instead it was placed upon Christ, and we get his forgiveness, and we have his righteousness placed upon us by faith. We don't have what we, we, don't have what we desire. We have more than we deserve. We get him, and we get all his grace and his adoption and his love and its eternal home in his presence. When we, when we dwell on that, when we learn around that, we, we press into that, we realize that it is, it is Christ who, who's laid hold of us to know this joy and this contentment. It's something we have to fight for, but it's something he has offered to us in himself freely in the gospel. I think that's why Paul would say something like this in Philippians 3.12. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Church, he has, he has made you his own through the power of his gospel. He has clothed you in his love. He has given you forgiveness. He has given you his son, Jesus. And if we have him, whatever we don't have, we have more than we deserve. We have Christ. And because he has made us his own, one day we will be in the fountain of his love and all the losses and all the gains and all the hungers and all the things that were plentiful. When we see him, we have Christ, they will, they be, they will be forgettable. Yeah. This is a promise for us for contentment today. A promise for us for contentment tomorrow. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you, you, you have made us your own. You've made us your own, not by something we've merited or done, but because of your good pleasure and your good joy for your glory. And people who do not deserve it, you, you made us your own. And you've set your love upon us, and, and, you, and you want to set more of your love upon us so that we could experience more of this contented joy in all circumstances. Lord, there are very real things that we face that, that undo us, very real losses that would tempt us to discontentment. There are, there are abundances and blessings you do give us, and Lord, those are also things we can give thanks for, but we don't want to miss opportunity to find peaceable, joyful contentment in you alone. So we need you to act upon us, Lord. We need you to, to work in our hearts this type of contentment. Thank you for teaching us. Lord, there's a bunch, a, 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 a myriad of learning that I witness and see in Cross of Grace where you, I see contented joy that you have, people have learned because of your grace and because of them being satisfied in you, Jesus. I thank you for that. Let us, let us keep growing in that. There's joy there, Lord, the invitation of your joy. We want more of your joy. We can do all things through you, Jesus, who gives us strength. Amen. Amen.